Hi, this is Charles Ojibwe with the Ledgeback Digital Commons Research Cooperative, and this is uh, another episode of the Philomath series on musings. And for this episode, I'm going to be uh, going over a prehistory of DAOs, uh, subtitle cooperatives, gaming guilds, and the networks to come. K. Krutler. So this article came out uh, about uh, you know, about a month ago, and it's a really great uh, dive into like the history, well, the prehistory of DAOs and really showing the connection between uh, DAOs, uh, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, and uh, cooperatives, and uh, the practice of cooperativism. Uh, so it's a really great one. Uh, and then also showing how that uh, connects to like, the future of like gaming guilds and how you know, they all uh, interconnect uh, via Web3. So uh, I'll uh, just kind of track most of the sections as per usual. Uh, and you know, if you uh, have the article up, uh, you know, I will include a link to it uh, in this uh, episode. You know, hopefully, you have it up, and then we'll just uh, you know, while I'm talking about the article, we'll be reading about it uh, at the same time. So the article starts off with uh, a statement from John Perry Barlow, uh, the founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, nonprofits which uh, advocates uh, for a free open internet. Uh, I'm pretty sure you guys have heard them before. And so uh, the statement, which I'm just going to quote here, uh, is a quote, uh, the year's 1996. John Perry Barlow is about to c- declare, quote, the internet consists of transactions, relationships, and thoughts itself, quote, end quote. And then Kay makes the point that uh, the first parts of, uh, of John Perry Barlow's uh, uh, statements, you know, the transactions, uh, that's kind of the, really the only parts that uh, we've seen really come up, you know, come through, uh, you know, on the internet, especially with you know Web three. This you know we got you know NFTs, DeFi, and uh, if you don't know, NFTs stand for non fungible tokens, and DeFi stands for decentralized finance. You know, those are big things uh, in Web three, especially in uh, uh, on uh, on blockchain networks. So. Those things have really come to fruition, but the, the one thing which uh, is slowly starting to emerge, and I think that's really you know uh, coming with the development of really more uh, digital cooperativism and just you know the appreciation for new online communities, uh, which can kind of trace back to uh, even like Wikipedia and just data commons, and it's a really uh, nice part which I like how uh, how K uh, starts off by mentioning you know. You know, started off with transactions. Like everyone knows about these transactions, great. But what about the relationships? <laughs> Let's not forget about uh, that part uh, in the statement. And the last part, the thoughts. I think that's more for tools or thought. But that one's uh, slowly changing. Unfortunately, that wasn't mentioned in this article. But uh, the relationships are. And so regarding the relationships, uh, Kay talks about how really next, you know, uh, next real step for Web three is you know. Uh, uh, really developing these new uh, peer-to-peer P2P uh, institutions, and so you know, uh, continues to talk a little bit about you know, NFTs, but I don't think that's really important. Uh, I think really the most important part is talking about kind of where the you know this current uh, uh, ideals about decentralized organizations really comes from, and so uh, K. Uh, dives into tribes, institutions, markets, networks, uh, acronym T-I-M-N, uh, by uh, David Ro- uh, Ronfeldt. 
and those reports came out uh, in, uh, in 1995, which was a year before John Perry Barlow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, which, you know, pretty much through this political ideology, pretty much a libertarian political ideology, uh, you know, to uh, describe uh, the internet, like what it's supposed to be, what it's supposed to be, uh, be used for, and uh, this uh, reports tribes, institutions, markets, networks as uh, of a similar vein. So you know, especially during you know back in this time before the answer really blew up, and you know, uh, uh, you know, with really with Web two, you know, uh, early to mid two thousands, you know, late nineties, this is when you know everyone was putting all these reports, just like oh the internet's coming out, world web's coming out, and so you know what kind of world are we gonna see uh, see from them? And they all kind of just injected their plague ideologies for uh, for good or for <laughs> uh, or bad. Uh, I feel as it was always a little bit of both uh, when it comes to uh, comes to these things. And so, uh, going back to uh, the report, Tries Institutions Markets Networks, by uh, Ronfeldt. Uh, it was uh, funded by the Rand Corporation, uh, which is a nonprofit research uh, and development think tank, founded in 1948. Uh, you know, they usually advise the U.S. military, uh, uh, governments, and industry. Like, they're also huge. And I think uh, uh, K made a really good plan starting off with uh, uh, with uh, you know with this report, Tribes and Institutions Marks Networks, because you know, the Rand Corporation has these relations with uh, with uh, the military, and of course this harkens back to the actual you know well the impetus for the internet and you know the internet of course uh, was started really as a actual as a military project you know started originally with DARPA. And so, you know, the internet itself, you know, also, you know, a, a bit about, you know, the internet, like where it comes from, and even the ideology that surrounds it does, you know, come a little bit from, uh, from that military, uh, sorry, uh, militarized context. So that was uh, a nice thing for her to, uh, uh, to introduce. It's, uh, it's not something that necessarily everyone uh, knows about the internet is, you know, it's, uh, it's origins, uh, and, uh, connections with, uh, with, uh, with the military and the, and DARPA, so Kay just uh, pretty much summarizes uh, the reports. Uh, so the reports pretty much just states how uh, you know organizing uh, forms have been evolving pretty much forever. So you start with kinship-based clans, tribes, which moves uh, on to uh, hierarchical institutions. So they have like armies, churches, and so for kinship, you know that one's pretty. It's just like family, extended family. And then moving on to competitive markets, so that's trading, uh, and then moving on to multi organizational networks, which is really where the uh, the internet comes in, and uh, you can think of those more like advocacy groups or just uh, non governmental organizations. So you know, even when you do get some of these new forms of organizing, they don't necessarily uh, completely uh, eliminate the old form of organizing. Usually, they do find some way to work together, and usually, the new form. That still exists within the older form, and so came to a really good point about how even though markets, you know, pretty much came and uh, became the dominant form, surpassing uh, hierarchical institutions, uh, you know, the markets themselves still drain a lot of uh, of uh, tax revenue for the you know institutional states, so you know, state governments or just governments in general. So even uh, even though the markets kind of, you know, puts uh, the government out of dealing with 
uh, you know, direct economic uh, activities, even though there's still so much run by the government. But for the most part, at least in uh, the U.S. and uh, uh, Western countries, you know, the government tries to stay out of more private or market affairs. Uh, but you know, even then, you know, these uh, you know uh, market actors still pay taxes. So they're still making money for the for the government, even though the government itself is not uh, participating in their uh, in those uh, direct economic activities. So that's just a really good example of showing how this new organizing form uh, that can't necessarily escape the old one. <laughs> so you know, even if you do want to make a new form, uh, you can't necessarily get away from the old one. You know, this they always find a way to to get uh, to. You know, sink its teeth in to uh, to get some benefit. Yeah, then uh, <clears throat> Kay harkens on uh, this one point uh, mentioned in the report, really talking about the political ideology uh, uh, in the reports, you know, concerning networks, which of course is kind of, uh, you know, what's a uh, DAO kind of aspires to be, or at least, you know, should be. <laughs> uh, and so how networks get uh, described and their report, I think it's uh, uh, kind of important thing to know. So I'm just going to reiterate that here. So really what makes networks uh, interesting is that uh, they're multi-organizational. So, you know, it's, you know they really do uh, emphasize uh, collaboration, cooperative practices among uh, entities and they tend to span across borders, uh, jurisdictions, you know, through, uh, also through markets. So, you know, it can be in multiple markets, it can be, I mean, technically it can be multiple, you know, institute, uh, hierarchical institutions, but, you know, technically the hierarchical institutions, government, they're crossing government borders, and I can even technically through tribes. So, I mean, really networks, you know, traverse everything. And so, you know, since they can uh, do that and, Another important thing too is that there might not necessarily be any distinct uh, organizational unity. So you know you can just have multiple groups just bringing together all on the same thing, but they're not together. So you can think of just like a uh, you know any like famous open source project. So like you might look at Linux, you might look at Wikipedia, you know very famous projects. You know you have all these people working on stuff, but they're not necessarily you know all together in one organization. You can have multiple organizations working together to uh, build these things, and so uh, you know that's a really you know uh, interesting point made uh, about networks uh, in the report. And then Kate continues to talk about you know really most importantly is that you know uh, you know that they're not really public or private. You know, with these networks, they're technically really have their own zone, and really that zone is kind of like civil society, non-governmental organizations. So, uh, you know, these are organizations which will, which can affect, you know, other issues which go on, you know, across the world or throughout society, but you know, not through uh, the old organizational forms. So I just thought that was an interesting point to sign that should be a uh, that should be mentioned. Yeah, and so given these uh, NGOs have the power, you know, through this network form, they would be able to really kind of export <laughs> uh, their uh, their soft power throughout uh, you know multiple uh, parts of society, 
And so that's pretty much kind of the reports, at least summarized by uh, Kay in the article. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, said, the article does mention DAOs, which of course makes sense. I don't think anyone is really thinking of DAOs. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was glad to see that, uh, that the idea has come about. And then from there, we move on to uh, DAOs. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, in the in the episode, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And so, K kind of traces the history of uh, of this conceptualization of uh, of a DAO. So, you know, where does the DAO come from? It comes from really just how do you apply decentralized technology uh, to change how uh, organizations operate? That's kind of it. And then, uh, so you know, initially, you know, uh, DAOs are called decentralized autonomous corporations. And then uh, eventually, uh, the term "decentralized autonomous organization" emerges, and this comes out around you know 2014. And so you know, uh, you know, originally in you know 2014, at least uh, you know based on Vitalik Buterin's article, DAOs, uh, DACs, DAs, and more an incomplete terminology guide. You know, uh, DAO is really meant to be a, a capitalized organization. Which a software protocol informs its operation, placing automation at its center and humans at its edges. So you know, print just have a software protocol which kind of you know automates some of the uh, functions of a of an organization. And so uh, an example is including the articles print uh, just that you know having a software protocol which distributes uh, earnings or capital to uh, to its members. And so uh, you know that's. Uh, idea of a DAO, you know, kind of gains a little bit of permanence. People start, you know, uh, taking that definition to heart. And so, of course, at least those people wonder if you can put everything into a software protocol <laughs> to deal with uh, human organizing. Uh, you know, lots of, uh, lots of thoughts on that one. And so, you know, uh, you know, even though that's, you know, it's kind of like how got originally, you know, defined in 2014, you know, the framing of what DAO is, you know, starts, uh, starts changing. And so after 2014, and then uh, between 2014, 2016, I guess change really to uh, really mean uh, unstoppable or censorship resistant uh, business. I'll tell you, you could just say organization. But, uh, you know, as you can see, you know, the DAO, like what's the deal, changes, you know, depending on, uh, depending on the time, depending on who's trying to promote what. And then, of course, we got to the nice little mention of the, the DAO, which was one of the biggest, you know, crowdfunding efforts ever back in 2016, which, of course, failed because uh, it got hacked. But, I mean, of course, it technically didn't get hacked. Some guy just, you know, used the code <laughs> in a way people didn't like, but you know, then he didn't break any of the rules. So, you know, always a interesting conversation about uh, that one, whether, you know, the whole uh, fork, you know, that created Ethereum Classic and Ethereum, you know, should have happened or how should have it gone? Uh, because, you know, did this guy actually break the rules? You know, what rules did he break? Did he break any, uh, did he break the software? Technically, no. But did he break some social, you know, uh, social rules? I mean, technically, yes. <laughs> so yeah, it's always a, you know, a fun one to go back to and just think about, uh, you know, just how much the interaction between the social layer and the technical layer is uh, affects the operations of uh, of a DAO or, uh, or as we're to call it, just you know, just digital organizations.
And then, uh, you know, as time moves on, and SK points out, you know, like, what's uh, a DOS, you know, changes depending on, you know, uh, you know what's, what's being implemented for, what's the cultural context, you know, what's uh, what's being used with. So, you know, as time goes on, you know, what's a DAO, it's just, you know, it kind of depends on <laughs> on the day and the day and the time. And so uh, for uh, for this article, K just focused on DAOs uh, and the uh, uh, on the Ethereum blockchain or uh, in the Ethereum blockchain community. And so uh, in K's uh, definition of a DAO, uh, which I'm going to quote here. Uh, so quote uh, in 2021, a DAO could be described as a voluntary association with the operating principles of digital cooperativism. As voluntary associations, they are cross sorry, they are a cross jurisdictional way for strangers, friends, or unlikely allies just to anonymously come together toward common goals, supported by a token model and sentence of governance. Members of a DAO can have representative ownership of essential assets through a token, which often simultaneously acts as a governance right. Uh, although many DAOs would not embrace the label of digital cooperative, one could say DAOs embrace cooperativism as a protocol, meaning an evolving set of relational practices that are distinct from traditional corporate structures or decentralized autonomous corporations because they prioritize member ownership. The label cooperative is further qualified here by digital because today DAOs act primarily to coordinate around digital assets. However, as the concept of DAOs evolves in practice, its digital primacy will fade. DAOs, as we will see, also introduce new dimensions that exceed what the operating principles of digital cooperative notionally encompass. End quote. So I really do like uh, this definition here from uh, yeah from from K because it's you know really good you know ties back to uh, the uh, you know I want to call it more traditional <laughs> organizational form, but back to cooperatives. And kind of showing you know, the historical evolvement of uh, of uh, cooperativism, and so and I thought you know uh, you know she made some really good points. I really did like the definition. You know, it's a DAO's a voluntary association with operating principles of digital cooperativism. You know, to me, uh, you know, at least from uh, some of my prior writings, uh, if you've had the chance to read them, I really do see DAOs and uh, and uh, cooperatives to be very similar. I personally don't find much of a difference between them since, uh, uh, you know, since both puts uh, membership at uh, at the heart, and they both uh, try to counter traditional uh, practices you would see with most uh, for-profit corporations or the practices of most for-profit corporations and you know Web two, which is kind of funny because if we look at uh, platform cooperativism, which is another form of uh, cooperativism meant to tackle uh, some of the issues in the sharing economy. You know, you'll also see them, uh, you know, try counter some of the, you know, uh, organizing uh, models and the, uh, which are present with Web2 organizations, uh, specifically in the sharing economy. But you look at them and then you look at uh, DAOs and they both appear to me to be trying to fight uh, a very similar battle and trying to go about with a similar way, though I would say, uh, Kind of the impetus for them. It's a little bit different because with platform cooperativism, you're focused a lot more on the uh, on the digital labor and trying to correct uh, some uh, failures in the labor market caused by uh, 
uh, uh, major uh, platforms in the sharing economy, uh, which are primarily in the with the Web two. Well, with the uh, DAOs, it's more I would say people trying to explore uh, ways of using uh, new technologies to organize uh, online, but at the same time, use these new technologies to counter uh, the practices of uh, of organizations and and uh, Web two. And uh, you know these practices aren't necessarily you know strictly about uh, digital labor or the sharing economy. So you could say the AOs kind of uh, are a little bit more expansive with what they appear to uh, to tackle than you would say with a with a platform cooperative. Uh, you know, even then, I would you know both of them still practice some form of cooperativism, and I think this also harkens back to the fact that you know there's a cooperative definition. Which I think is good. You know, it's really important to have that definition of people kind of idea like, oh, what the heck is a cooperative? So that you don't necessarily have certain organizations call themselves a cooperative when they're not actually a cooperative, which uh, it's also called cooperative washing or alternatively community washing. Uh, but, uh, you know, with uh, with that point, I you know, cooperative itself, I think it's not necessarily limited to just the seven principles, which are... Uh, upheld by the uh, International Cooperative uh, Alliance, the ICA. And, you know, there, is, there are new forms of cooperativism emerging. And that's one of the things I really do like about cooperativism is that it's, an, it's, a, it's a set of relational practices. At the end of the day, it's about the relational practice. And then, uh, you know, executing them through, uh, through an organization. And so... You know what those practices are can change with time. You know, cartoon is not meant to uh, really be stagnant, and that's you know one of the things you can see with like platform cartoonism. You know, has its own additional set of principles. Uh, you know, ten principles, which unfortunately I can't recall off the top of my head, but you know, ten additional principles to the uh, principles uh, stated by the uh, ICA. So, you know, you can keep you know uh, evolving cooperativism. So. Uh, you know, I can definitely understand why some deals would not want the label of digital cooperative, even though <laughs> they're kind of doing the same thing. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, but I would, you know, just like to see you know, a little bit more uh, attention, and understanding of cooperativism, and just you know, not necessarily the expression of you know these you know values of cooperativism or the relational practices of cooperativism, and then not uh, executing them. Because uh, really, most important thing with cooperativism, it's not just having the values it's, uh, and the principles; it's about executing them through the organization. So, if you look at any cooperative and the way that uh, they're formed, you know, it's not about the legal formation; it's not uh, about whether you actually have a, a legal organization or not. It's just about do you have, you know, do you believe in these principles and do you execute them? And so the reason why you usually use for a legal form is that legal form usually, you know, executes those, you know, uh, those principles, you know, it's required by law to execute them. So that's a big reason why people usually look for that. But of course, it's not necessarily required. And so, you know, I at least get to my point, it's really just that, you know, corporatism itself constantly is just evolving. And so as I said, you know, one new form is platform cooperativism, but there's also open cooperativism which is kind of promoted by the Open Co-op and uh, uh, the P2P Foundation. And then you have the 
uh, the Serial Cooperative Organization, which is uh, 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 which is run by uh, pretty much uh, Dr. Troncoso and uh, the, the Serial Cooperative Organization team, uh, which I think is uh, supported by the Guerrilla Media Collective. So you have all these new forms of uh, cooperativism, which kind of combines uh, some commoning with them. And you do see a lot of similar similarities between uh, DAOs and these new forms of co cooperativism, which to me all is uh, it's always an interesting point. And then an even more interesting point is when you see a you know a, a cooperative or a platform a cooperative which is using Web three technologies. It's like, I mean, technically that's <laughs> that's what a DAO is. It's you know a cooperative which uses you know. Uh, uh, you know, Web3 tech, at least to me, that's, you know, kind of how I see it. And if you look at, uh, at uh, case definition, uh, you know, voluntary association with the operating principles of digital cooperativism, like that pretty much covers it. So you look at some like really uh, big platform cooperatives, which use Web3, look at cooperative Claros, you look at Ava Cooperative, you look at Arcade City, uh, you look at Lab10 Collective, you know, they all use, you know, blockchain or provide, you know, blockchain-based products. While at the same time, using the cooperative form. Which, to me, kind of, you know, brings it all together into a into a DAO. You know, not saying that other, you know, DAOs aren't DAOs. But I think, you know, they can still be DAOs. Because, uh, to me, that new form of uh, cooperativism. You know, you can also have quasi-cooperatives. And that's how I see a lot of uh, uh, DAOs. Which try to like which to me embrace cooperative values but don't actually execute them uh within their organizations so i usually just call them quasi cooperatives so like a uh, example would be like index co-op or index coop you know which kind of seems to uh embrace the values and even somewhat execute upon them but doesn't really you know uh states their alignment with the cooperative values which is fine to me uh, and to me, that would be kind of a quasi-cooperative. Because, you know, they're pretty much just practicing it, but just not saying it, which to me is, like, perfectly fine because, you know, we're trying to get neologisms. You know, that's really what's I feel as if, you know, goes on a lot with Web3 is people try to reinvent, you know, old words with new terms or, you know, old phenomena with, uh, with some new terms to kind of try to understand them again. Which is you know great to see because it shows that you know, there's something going on in the world that's real, you know, that we don't really understand. That you know maybe you know the time this you know term came out, do we really understand it at this level? Especially with uh, with the introduction of you know the internet, the web, web two, and now web three. It's like now we get, now we can rethink you know uh, how we perceive certain phenomena. So I really do like these neologisms to help us kind of understand them as we. Uh, uh, as we move forward uh, through uh, in the stage of uh, Web three, so yeah, you know, that's just my little rant about uh, uh, cooperativism with uh, with Web three uh, and the uh, DAOs. You know, hopefully, you know, hopefully you enjoyed that part. You know, luckily after this, there's even more stuff about how <laughs> uh, uh, DAOs whether intersects with uh, platform cooperatives. So you know, hold on till then. And sorry if this episode's kind of long. This is just a really, well, in itself, it's kind of like a packed article and kind of long itself. But, you know, after, you know, just mentioning uh, kind of how that comes together, you know, uh, Kay, you know, just starts talking about uh, 
uh, please do that. But you know, before that, just you know, mentions you know what's kind of like the minimum viable uh, DAO. And so, of course, you know, at the end of the day, what's a what's a what's a DAO? It's not about the it's not about Web three tech. You know, Web three tech is great, but you know, Web three tech could be used by you know, a hierarchical institution to do things. Uh, it could be used by governments to do things. Uh, you know even by non-democratic governments. So, you know, this Web3 tech itself doesn't make a DAO. You know, it's more about, you know, the, uh, you know, the digital, uh, well, the practice of digital cooperativism. And so when it comes to Web3 tech specifically for DAOs, uh, you know, there's this really great term uh, from uh, from Jack Liang, hopefully I'm getting his name right, uh, you know, called, uh, you know, he just calls it organizational technology or uh, for short, uh, org tech. Which I really like because that's actually uh, much more useful than saying uh, uh, than uh, just saying like web uh, web three or just DAO because you know to me a DAO has to combine a social layer with a technical layer and so the social layer that's the digital cooperativism that's the community and technical layer that's the org tech based on web three. I mean technically you could have a DAO. Uh, which doesn't use Web3 tech if, you know, if we're just going by the basis of the of, uh, case definition, which is just a voluntary association uh, uh, with the operating principles of digital cooperativism. Technically, you don't need Web3 to be a DAO. But I think, you know, since uh, DAO uh, comes from the Web3 space, it almost feels like you have to use uh, Web3 tech uh, to, be a, uh, to be a DAO. So, you know, those are just my thoughts on that. But going back to a minimum viable DAO, pretty much uh, as case case, so what you need is just uh, uh, a talk space and a bank account. So you can pretty much make that with, uh, with Gnosis a safe multi-sig. Uh, and then also a Discord server, or just a place to talk. So Discord, Telegram, uh, Reddit. So, you know, you can do all those things. And then K gives this really nice rundown on the uh, on Pleaser uh, DAO. Uh, so, uh, it's spelled P-L-E-A-S-R-D-A-O. Uh, so, you know, Pleaser DAO came together to uh, uh, to bid on an NFT by the artist uh, People Pleaser, uh, spelled P-P-L-P-L-E-A-S-R. So, you know, really, you know, the, so that's the original goal. And then the purpose, you know, evolved from there was to, you know, become a collective, uh, which could pull funds together and then, uh, uh, engage in, uh, uh, auctions for, uh, for NFTs. So, you know, they've collected a lot of, uh, a lot of works and they've done, uh, pretty interesting things. And so, you know, primarily they act as uh, collectors, but they also do uh, see uh, a need to expand their scope and be uh, uh, a place to incubate projects. And so, one of the things Pleaser DAO has that other, uh, well, that can challenge uh, uh, institutional collectors uh, is that they can also bring in artists to be members. And so, this kind of harkens back to, you know, platforms and you know, but uh, if you look at, you know, uh, the art world, you know, you got artists, you got collectors, and then you got the actual uh, uh, buyers. So, you know, if we think about it, let's just say the artist is the producer, and then the uh, buyer is the consumer. 
And so who's between the, the producer and the consumer? That's the collector. The collector is the one who's pretty much doing the matchmaking between uh, the, uh, the producer and the consumer, which once again, is the artist and uh, the, the buyer. And so this is where you know, Web3 and the platform cooperatism can really come in handy is that they both challenge uh, the platform owner and the, and the platform ecosystem and so, you know, they go about you know different ways, but you know, at the end of the day, their uh, their objective is to tackle uh, the platform owner to decentralize uh, their control or uh, their influence over the ecosystem, and more often than not, to uh, relieve uh, pressure that's been placed on uh, one, uh, you know, either the producers or the consumers or both. And so that's you know that's a uh, I feel also does bring both sides together. So they're all about uh, taking on these uh, platform owners uh, uh, and Web two. And then continuing on with the Pleaser Dao example, uh, you know Pleaser Dao recently you know uh, you know well, I'm not sure it was recently, but they issued uh, their own token uh, to represent uh, membership uh, in Pleaser Dao. Uh, so. Uh, you know, it's uh, distributed internally to uh, represent, you know, member stake in the collection. And, you know, they are concerned to make it public. And uh, Kay also mentions another uh, example, which is Party DAO, which uh, has the, which issued the uh, party token with the, of course, cash tag party uh, to represent membership in the group. And that gives, you know, certain rights. So you can, uh, you know, join a group chat, governance rights, and uh, right to, uh, uh, some of the productive value, you know, which is kind of similar. Uh, well, I'm not sure if that's uh, just a uh, uh, right to profits or to uh, revenue. Uh, I'm not exactly sure about that, but it's uh, some rights to uh, to uh, to take some of the productive value. And uh, you know, with both police day and party day, you know, they both do have uh, an elected group of uh, individuals who manage their uh, multi-sig accounts uh, treasuries so not completely flat and i think this also kind of goes back to the point about uh, the network itself or at least uh, you know any network organization you know it's not really about it being flat uh, it's really about whether you can uh, change the rank of uh, of individuals within the network at uh, at any time so you might be you know on top and next time you might be on the bottom and so this one you do see with some uh, some cooperatives with their boards where you know certain uh, uh, board members might come from uh, you know a lower position than uh, than like say like the CEO or one of the uh, senior uh, uh, people. Uh, so you know this kind of showing the fact that you know where people are uh, in the organizations not necessarily uh, you know f uh, flat. Uh, you can still you know have some hierarchy, but it's really about ability to go up and go down. <laughs> I think that's, uh, of course, this goes back to heterarchy, which is something that gets brought up with, uh, uh, with the uh, comes-based peer production a, uh, a lot, and with networks as well. So that you know, there's not, you know, you can be up, you can be down, uh, or you could be uh, be flat. <laughs> you know, you kind of have the ability to be, you know, in any of those uh, uh, positions. And uh, and then, uh, you know, Kimmy said, 
you know, I think a really nice point about uh, police or DAO and Paradio is that, you know, they started with just, you know, a really small mission and just specifically for, like, their group. And then, then it expands from there. And now they're going to use, you know, now using, you know, tokens to represent ownership, which, you know, you know uh, analogous to cooperatives using uh, stock to represent uh, ownership as well. So, you know, uh, just showing the kind of the, you know, how digital cooperatives is kind of getting practiced uh, through uh, police DAO and uh, party DAO. And so from there, uh, you know, Kay moves on to just talking about the relation between uh, uh, DAOs and uh, the cooperative movement. You know, I went through it a little bit earlier, but uh, I'll include anything uh, that uh, I didn't mention before. And so, uh, you know, the case starts, you know, discussing about how uh, uh, DAOs themselves have been kind of moving to, uh, you know, other, well, new tools for uh, for their governance. And that's one of the things that's, excuse me, that's just kind of left vaguely defined as governance, which I think it should be since every, excuse me, collective Speaking of its own individuals as its own things is trying to accomplish, and so pretty much governance itself. You know, you can have, you know, uh, uh, pretty much the same governance tools, but you know how each you know uh, deal governs itself should uh, should be different. If you have a uh, uh, you know different uh, different memberships, uh, so starting off, you know, uh, deals use snapshot to create and pass proposals. Uh, so a lot of them do that. Uh, you know, how, you know, uh, votes get weighed, that's kind of uh, up to the DAO. Uh, so, you know, uh, and by doing weighted voting, that's, like, where you can see, like, a difference between a uh, cooperative and, uh, and, uh, and a, well, and a DAO, but not necessarily required, but, you know, certain DAOs might not have one-to-one -one voting. Uh, so that's one, you know, one area where you can see a uh, a big split <laughs> between uh, traditional cooperatives and uh, and DAOs, and then you know disregarding uh, 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 some of the governance history, uh, K you know starts talking about uh, Malak DAO, uh, sorry Malak DAO, which is kind of like a classic uh, <laughs> uh, DAO, which is kind of just set up like the framework for a lot of uh, new DAOs to come. Uh, you know, which, you know, came after the, the, the DAO hack. So this was like the big DAO that came out after uh, the DAO hack and pretty much just, you know, slots a lot of forks. A lot of people uh, have been using as a template themselves to create uh, their own uh, DAOs. And uh, there's this nice, you know, tweet in the article uh, from Peter Pan where he just gives like a timeline of, uh, of DAOs. Uh, you know, I'm not really going to go uh, into it since, uh, you know, don't really need to. You can see the tweet. And so, you know, uh, Kay mentioned some of the other projects which have been, you know, working on uh, on DAO. So, to mention Aragon, Colony, Dow House. Uh, well, it might be DAO House, but it doesn't sound as cool as Dow House. I mean, Dow House just sounds cool. And then there's DAO Stack, but Dow Stack sounds way cooler than DAO Stack. Yeah, to me, I'm you know, just thinking about, I'm like, you should probably go Dow instead of DAO, because Dow just sounds cooler than DAO. And then also block science, common stack, and you know, all these uh, projects all offer a lot of uh, uh, new tools for uh, for governance. And uh, 
and then from there, you know, to finally uh, makes a connection uh, apparent uh, in the essay about how uh, cooperatives connect to platform cooperativism. So, you know, you know, she starts off with how you know platformism gets coined by Trevor Shawls, and then you got Exit Community by uh, by uh, Nathan Schneider, and this you know, of course intersects with Jesse Walden's uh, uh, ownership economy, his idea, which is kind of kind of an interesting combination of I'd say platform cooperatives and and like uh, and Web three, and so the big point here is that you know for you know with the connection so that I harked on. Oh, sorry, I hearkened on uh, earlier. It's really about how platform cooperatism and Web three are all about attacking platform owners, uh, in the current uh, platform economy and uh, and Web two, because you know you know the categories that both kind of go for is you know you want platforms owned, developed, and stewarded by their uh, community of users, which I just kind of stole from the article. But you know that's pretty much what they're all going for. You know, different ways, but that's kind of what uh, what we're going for. And, you know, ways to evolve uh, the ownership of them, and then going you know to the point of you know access to community. This one you see with like a lot of products. A lot of them will start off with like overcurrent oh, create this you know uh, you know DeFi uh, protocol or this kind of protocol, and then they're gonna exit to community. So we're gonna give it to the community. So you can kind of see this with uh, with I mean, with Uniswap. You know, the actual uh, decentralized exchange itself. Is uh, it's you know technically autonomous. It's just run, it's runs on chain. But you know anyone can make their own interface to uh to work with uh with Uniswap. So, uh you know there was that recent incident where, you know Uniswap kind of kicked off certain uh, uh certain swaps, which got people all up in arms. And then, uh some other organizations made their own interface so you can use to you know still work with the with a decentralized exchange acronym Dex. So that's kind of uh, kind of the example. It's like you know you can make it uh, access to community, give it to uh, uh, the community, or uh, I just uh, you know, I kind of prefer to say it's like I mean, technically you're not giving to anyone. <laughs> I mean you're really just making it that uh, it's running autonomously on on the uh, on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, and of course it's through smart contracts, and so uh, you know. You can call that exit community. I think I think it's pretty close. Uh, I think it'd be a little bit more exit community if you, of course, include that with like a like with something like you know uh, Uni's uh, grants pro uh, program and the Uni governance, where you get the you know governance token and make decisions about uh, about the decks. Uh, I think that's closer, but I still think it does uh, you know miss a couple of things uh, just because. You know, you know, who exactly is this community, and you know, you know, are, is everyone you know in this community actually even you know using the the decks? Because you know, some people who might be you know big uh, uh, players uh, in the Uni's governance might not necessarily be using the exchange. So uh, you know, even though I feel as if it's great and that the term itself makes sense, and at least most. Uh, you know, uh, these different programs are actually doing a really good job of it. I think that would be my only uh, points to, to harp on. It's just, you know, you know, we say exit community, but, you know, who who or what is its community? Because to me, it's meant to technically be anyone. And so if it's anyone, it's not really a, a community at that point. Uh, you know, because you need some barriers to have a community. Yeah, I think at that point, you could probably just say that uh, it kind of becomes a public good 
or uh, or infrastructure or uh, even a utility uh, you know that just happens to be uh, stored and operated on a on a blockchain at that uh, point in time if you know there are no barriers to determine who is or uh, who is not uh, part of uh, of the community and then uh, K makes this really you know really great point and I'm just going to quote here uh, quote because DAOs use early stage software tools it makes sense that their first users and use cases would involve the governance of digital assets such as software protocols DAOs digital privacy is perhaps one reason that the resemblance to earlier cooperative movements often goes remark uh, sorry unremarked end quote I think that's a really good point. It's just that's you know where they also come from. Uh, you know, it might not necessarily be uh, people who you know are involved with uh, with co-ops or with the platform cooperative movement. Uh, even though some of the early you know big names, you know, even in uh, in Web three and crypto at the time, you know, was, were involved in uh, and co <laughs> sorry and co-ops uh, or even the, just the solidarity economy. And I mean, you do see like a lot of these elements of you know uh, the solidarity economy and some uh, you know. Uh, web3 projects so it's not too strange that you know those elements are there but i think you know uh k makes just a really good point just about that digital primacy and the digital and this kind of even going back to uh, john barlow's like you know the cyberspace is free from everything that's in the real world and you know technically that includes co-ops you know it's like you know you, it's a space you know not you know constrained or uh by don't the real world and try to keep everything out of it. So I think that's also something that you know comes into play, and uh, why that uh, the term digital card, you know, uh, sometimes seems a little uh, uh, you know uh, allergic from uh, from Web three uh, uh, community members. Sometimes it's because of uh, because of that is that you know the internet web's meant to free you from these real world uh, chains <laughs> uh, that hold you down. So you know that could be a well, you know one reason. You know another one could be just considering, uh, you know, just how much you know the car movement's been trying to establish itself. And though really, you know, it's you know it's huge. You know, uh, the car of you know economy is really big. Uh, but just get into the general parlance for people to just generally know what a co-op is, especially in the U.S. Uh, and that's also, I think, another big point too is that you know a lot of you know people in the U.S. were you know what they really you know picked up uh, early on, uh, you know don't know a lot about co-ops, uh, and that's just because of how co-ops have developed here in the U.S. And there's been a lot of uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say uh, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, all those intentional efforts, but you know some efforts which have you know which have undermined the development of cooperatives and. Uh, the U.S., you know, compared with the developments of cooperatives in Europe, where there's a lot more cooperative uh, development and, uh, you know, much more cooperatives and much more, like, just acceptance and, I would say, understanding of uh, uh, of cooperatives. And so I think that's uh, another big one, too, uh, is that, you know, if you look at, you know, just uh, the the ideology and the culture that's influenced the area the most, it's, it's pretty much America, <laughs> at least uh, you know. I would say, in uh, in my opinion, and then you know, you look at John uh, John Barlow's opinion. That's also influenced by you know the American uh, uh, political climate of his time and by the uh, a libertarian uh, mindsets uh, you know, of you know of the nineties. 
And so that's something you might not necessarily see in a lot of European countries, but it's something you see here in the U.S. So I think just having that, uh, the U.S., uh, uh, you know, well, having Web3 really boom in the U.S. first, uh, you know, really before going uh, elsewhere, or at least, you know, at, you know, becoming big in the U.S., at least I'd say before necessarily other places, even though, of course, it became really big in China, I would still say the U.S., you know, most of the big players uh, have some presence in the U.S. And, you know, at least early on, you know, you had, uh, uh, you know, like the Silk Road, which was, you know, based in the U.S. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of companies started here. You know, you got Coinbase, which is based, you know, here in the U.S., uh, you have a lot of you know big companies uh, in the and Web three crypto which are based in the in the U S. So uh, and you know that's excuse me. And you look at you know even the origin of the growing you know uh, Bitcoin community in the early days, you can see that libertarian slant uh, from the U S. side, and you can see how that's influenced the space uh, you know really since then. So I think those are, you know, uh, you know, uh, some points or at least some reasons why just making the connection between uh, DAOs and earlier cooperative movements has been, uh, you know, harder to see for uh, for uh, for some people in the in the Web three space, as as because of uh, you know the early you know rise of uh, of Bitcoin blockchain uh, coming from. Uh, really libertarians uh, in the U.S., <laughs> so that could be one, uh, and also the lack of uh, knowledge uh, concerning cooperatives or the cooperative movements uh, here in the U.S. as well. So you know those are two possible reasons why you know making the connection has been uh, hard, or at least been uh, uh, hard to express or see just the 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 understanding of of the connection. Uh, at least the appear uh, appearance uh, or apparentness of this connection that exists. Uh, you know that might be uh, you know at least two reasons why. Yeah, if there are other reasons that you think the connection hasn't come before, uh, please you know leave that as a reply or uh, send a message to uh, ledgerbag at gmail.com. Because I would really like to know people's thoughts on why uh, you know making the connection between DAOs and uh, and cooperatives you know has a uh, has taken so uh, so long, and you know, even though there have been some uh, some uh, some big articles, you know, some big papers, and of course, coming before uh, connecting uh, co-ops and uh, and blockchain, that's like one of the few articles which I've seen, which comes from like Web three <laughs> people making that making that connection, and which has you know gained popularity. So you know, uh, I mean, other than like Jesse Walden. And uh, you know, and Nathan Schneider, who intersects kind of both spaces, and of course, like Morshid Manan, and uh, you know, uh, even technically, even like Samir Hassan and uh, Primavera, you know, you know, I haven't really seen a lot of people bringing you know, connecting DAOs with cooperatives, so it's you know, good to see that you know, more and more this connection is being made. I think really just uh, you know, evolution of you know, DAOs, but also as a uh, as you know, social clubs. Uh, which I mean, technically a cooperative is as well. Yeah, I think that's really helped lead to a uh, to uh, to that uh, evolution, and also with uh, with the fact that you know 
a lot of these, you know, with the anti-growth, the indifference on the creative industry and the creative industry, you know, a lot of the problems expressed in creative industry are problems which, you know, cooperatives have, uh, have, uh, really, uh, tried to highlight, uh, in the past. And so you, you can see a lot of, uh, you know, cooperatives in the creative industries. So that's, I think has also been, uh, very helpful. And so, uh, you know, another, uh, person who's you know at this intersection of course is uh as uh, austin roby uh and so austin you know uh it's a member of ample collective which is a platform co-op which is kind of trying to make a patron for uh for their musician members and so he kind of uh, is at you know uh at the intersection of both but he's also at seed club where he's trying to see if he can develop a social token for ample you know have their own little uh, community currency so you know, there are, you know, it's starting to evolve more and more and more people are starting to see this connection, trying to, you know, uh, grow uh, this intersection. So that's what I'm very, very uh, happy to see. And I should also mention uh, Joshua Davila, who also has been doing some great work connecting uh, uh, blockchain with uh, and uh, Web3 with cooperatives, especially with the uh, with bread chain cooperative. So a lot of you know work has been going on. I think people are just now making the connection. So hopefully we see more. And oh, I also should not forget, uh, you know, also proof of humanity. Uh, you know, lots of good work from Santi. Yeah, and uh, Circles UBI. A lot of you know, you know, Circles UBI actually is a blockchain cooperative. So uh, you know, some really good you know work at you know bringing more of this uh, intersection uh, together. So. I think this is going to be a big growing area. It's just how, you know, it's the uh, connection between uh, DOs uh, and the, uh, the cooperative movement, uh, you know, possibly through some, uh, some expansion of, you know, uh, Jesse Walden's ownership economy and seeing how we can, you know, use that to con continue to combine uh, platform cooperativism with, uh, with, uh, with Web3 and the growth of uh, social clubs and especially... Uh, 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 DAOs, which deal with the creative industries. So I think those are a little bit more, uh, more, uh, likely to take on a cooperative, uh, 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 cooperative practices or cooperative model, uh, just because of the problems that they're trying to deal with tend to be able to resolved by, uh, the cooperative model. And it's a little bit easier to kind of just, you know, figure it out. <laughs> like, Oh, that's why I would pick a co-op and, uh, you know, embrace, you know, the, the organizational form and practice the values, even though, uh, you know, a lot of people might hold those values, they might not necessarily practice it or embody in their organizations. And that's what I think we'll uh, see more of. And then from there, uh, uh, Kay starts talking about, uh, the, uh, ICA's definition of co-op and also, uh, the Rockdale principles, the seven principles, which guide co-ops globally. That makes a really good point about how pretty much a DAO could pretty much just uh, have come up with uh, those principles, you know, today, or at least you know those principles kind of seem to be what you know are being uh, uh, somewhat uh, being embodied by uh, by the current DAOs, and so um, and to, you know mentions you know specifically that's you know the principle of volunteer and open membership, member economic participation, and concern for community gets translated by a. Uh, uh, police or DAO and party DAO. So they're kind of practicing those, you know, uh, those principles and that's, uh, you know, really having, uh, cooperation among co-ops is kind of, uh, 
a key way to uh, encourage DAOs to work with other DAOs and form multi-organizational networks or possibly something akin to like a cooperative federation, which I think does get talked about uh, later in the article. And then you also mentioned how DAOs, you know, could, you know, embody more nor more of the, the norms and the practices of democratic member control. So of course, you know, it doesn't need to be necessarily the same, but that's, you know, something I mentioned, you know, earlier, you know, you could have, you know, instead of, you know, instead of one, one to one, you know, one token, one votes, uh, you know, some deals have weighted voting. So depending on how much, uh, how many tokens you have, that determines, you know, how much voting power you have. So, you know, that's a, uh, that's just a difference there, but you know, I think that's something that, uh, uh, you know, that's, uh, that doesn't necessarily go against uh, one member, uh, you know, one member, one vote. You know, I think that kind of depends on how, uh, on how the voting method is being used. Yeah, you know, at least, uh, at least to me. But Kate, that's being a good point that this could be a problem in the future. You know, as DAOs match more, uh, uh, public goods on uh, on uh, the Ethereum blockchain, really just you know any blockchain. And Kay mentions uh, how some projects have been uh, tackling this a little bit uh, uh, retroactively. So Tornado Cash, you know, sent uh, tokens to some uh, prior users so that they could be you know uh, stakeholders of the third privacy protocol. A uh, Regen Network uh, set aside thirty percent of their tokens for. Uh, for certain uh, certain experts, so uh, for land stewards, climate scientists, and other stakeholders in regenerative land management, so you know experts in the regenerative land management, which I thought uh, yeah, it's actually a pretty cool idea. So that way you can uh, incorporate more people uh, into uh, into the governance. And of course, it's you know always a little bit easier to share tokens than <laughs> to. Uh, then necessarily uh, give out shares, but then I think that really depends on. on uh, well, I actually take back. It's not necessarily you know easier. I would say that just the uh, cost of uh, of keeping up or uh, of really the management of the shares you know becomes easier. I mean, giving someone a, a share it's actually pretty easy. <laughs> it's just uh, the management of it that's uh, a little bit hard, which is something that also come easier with a with a DAO, and then. Uh, you know, uh, Kay makes this point that, uh, you know, she actually believes that DAOs don't go beyond uh, the operating uh, principles of a digital co-op uh, by introducing a method uh, that kind of allows for, you know, uh, you know, some experts to have more of a say in governance, but I don't really see, it, you know, see that part because you know, to me, you know, kids have a co-op which has another class, which is like specifically for an, you know a type of experts, or you could have a committee, you know, which you know is run by certain experts. So I don't really see how that goes beyond uh, the operating principles of a of a digital co-op. Because nothing about the operating principles, uh, you know, kind of relating back to the principles of a co-op themselves, you know, say anything about. Uh, you know whether certain expertise is required to govern uh, the uh, the organization. So yeah, I don't really see that part, but I do like the the fact that you know that region our says like some for for some of these uh, experts to uh, to have some say. 
uh, to make their own uh, DAOs to help govern the, the region network, which is its, uh, its own blockchain. Yeah, and then K makes a really nice part about uh, how, at least when it comes to tokenization, uh, you know, one of the things that you know tokenization can really help with is to, uh, you know, uh, really recognize uh, underrecognized <laughs> uh, 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 value, uh, uh, well, relationships or values or you know just things which we think are valuable. Uh, you know, it's kind of just a way of you know. Uh, of recognizing certain values, you know, through tokens, which is kind of just making uh, like a currency. So a way just to recognize values, which you know, we haven't really, well, which we might think are important, but you know, can't necessarily do just exclusively through, you know, uh, through money or through how just the general framework of how the economy is perceived. So, for example, like instead of looking at gross domestic product, you might just look at, you know, what's the, you know, the daily wage of, uh, of a worker and uh, just a random part of, uh, of the country and just like, you know, if they can, you know, uh, make enough money just to survive a month, you know, you might use that as your barometer or you might, you know, look at, uh, you know, how does the environment or how happy are the people instead of looking at, you know, just Christmas as a product. So, you know, just different ways of, you know, recognizing the importance of things. And so I think that's a really big uh, application for Web3, and I think that's something that uh, definitely should be pursued. And, uh, you know, came to the point that, you know, we could look at, uh, you know, recognizing, you know, uh, you know labor and environmental uh, uh, value, which we haven't necessarily done before, or at least, you know, if we have, we haven't done very well. <laughs> and uh, uh, mentions that, you know, a token has, you know, three uh, useful functions. Uh, one, bootstrap funding. Uh, two, distributing governance rights, and three, aligning uh, ecosystem of uh, DAOs. Uh, so when it comes to uh, you know, tokenization for early organizations, this actually makes it kind of really easy to uh, upend the traditional corporate structure and say go with something that's you know much more like a cooperative because you can have co-ownership right away. Uh, so that's kind of one of the nice parts but so of course, you know, it's not just about, you know, giving out this, uh, you know, well, having more, you know, have more people who have equity, but also you got to have the ownership culture to go, uh, to kind of go along with it. And so, you know, came okay, is one of the big problems that come along with a membership token, uh, because sometimes membership tokens double as governance tokens. And so, you know, uh, you have, uh, you know, this token is also you know, has governance rights attached, you know, a lot of these uh, tokens can be sold on secondary uh, markets. So, you know, of course, this does make it easier to join the DO, but this might, you know, hamper uh, the DO in trying to look at the long term and establishing uh, uh, cultural practices. So that's something that, you know, DAOs can uh, can learn from co-ops is about, uh, you know, long-term uh, visions and setting up cultural practices and making sure that uh, you know, at least the membership tokens uh, are somewhat uh, uh, thought of in a more uh, long-term view. And then, of course, in the reverse, you know, there's a lot that uh, co-ops themselves can learn from uh, from DEOs. And she high, uh, well cites uh, 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 Marcia Manon's uh, great paper, Foster Worker Cooperatives with Blockchain Technology Lessons from the Colony Project. 
that's you know that cooperatives can learn from DAOs uh, when it comes to coordination uh, at scale, especially that crosses borders. Uh, because you know when a uh, cooperative tries to internationalize, some of the issues that it gets is that uh, you know there's a you know, uh, well. I'm just going to quote here, quote, negative trend and participatory management, mutual monitoring and solidarity, end quote. So that's something that's, you know, unfortunately affects uh, crops as they scale. Uh, and that's something where DAOs can kind of help along with, and I think, you know, I wouldn't say DAOs, but really just more org tech can actually help with, uh, uh, of course, you know, you know, if you just look at the basic org tech, that I don't think that ever it's going to replace uh, you know uh, any organization, but it's something that can be used to help across borders. And so uh, I think that's something that can uh, can really help uh, at cooperatives uh, in the digital space as you know using org tech. Yeah, and now we move on to uh, gaming guilds. Yeah, I know this episode's running uh, uh, much longer than uh, usual. But uh, trust me, it's worth it. This is a great article. I recommend you read it. There's just like a lot to you know, unpack here. So hopefully you uh, you're still uh, listening uh, to uh, to my thoughts, and uh, hopefully you're still uh, enjoying the the episode so far. So moving on to guilt. Uh, now we go to the '90s. Back to the '90s. You know, of course you got role uh, player. Uh, Real player games. So, if anyone remembers some of these uh, massively multiplayer online games, you know MMOs, you know they were huge. So, you know, of course, you got Realm Online, Ultima Online, EverQuest. Uh, eventually, of course, leading to World of Warcraft, WoW, and Eve Online. Uh, unfortunately, I never got to play those games, which is kind of sad. And so, since these uh, MMOs are you know open open games, you know a lot of you know times you'd have people form uh, uh, clans, uh, guilds, or alliances to, you know, of course, uh, accomplish some of the uh, goals in the game. So, you know, complete, you know, difficult raid, get some tools, uh, you know, accomplish, you know, some goal. And, of course, some cultural pants emerge. <laughs> then we get this uh, little interesting passage about uh, how, you know, can be message between, you know, the cultural patterns and the tools uh, which exist for, uh, for these kinds of uh, uh, plants or guilds to use. So, uh, Kay provides this example from EVE Online. Uh, which I'm going to quote, uh, the game world developers create an interface for players to create corporations that allow players to distribute shares. In practice, this feature to distribute shares was rarely used because it did not enhance existing cultural patterns. Instead, using EVE Online's in-game browser and data API, many guilds developed their own tools needed to accomplish goals. And so, uh, end quote, uh, so, you know, Kay makes the point that it's, you know, something to how DLs are currently operating, so they use a lot of composable tools. So instead of just one tool, there's multiple tools involved. Yeah, I'm not really sure if that's just because they're, you know, early stage, or, you know, that might, you know, change in the future when you get to, you know, some bigger uh, or better org tech tools. You know, hopefully, you know, you know only time will tell. And then Kay makes a, a really un- <laughs> interesting uh, point, uh, that uh, you know, even though you know, you know, distributing corporations didn't really uh, uh, you know go off on evil line. However, you know, the practice of free distribution for you know efforts uh, uh, among guild members for uh, for certain activities did. Uh, so she uh, you know highlights uh, uh, this uh, uh, this point of uh, direct and kill points DKP. Uh, which comes from like a raid where you're pretty much gotta go kill a dragon, which is uh, really popular in earlier uh, MMOs. 
So that was you know, within guilds, but also uh, uh, across guilds. So you know, uh, you know, killing uh, these dragons. Uh, Sundays took <laughs> uh, a couple hours or several days. So as you can see, these developers really did not care about uh, the players' lives. <laughs> they kind of <laughs> And so, you know, of course, once you kill the, you know, kill the dragon, you know, get some loot. And then, you know, once you get the loot, then the guild has to decide how to distribute the loot. So, you know, that's where the redistribution comes in. And so, you know, once you got the loot, now you got to figure out how to distribute the loot. And so, you know, with these guilds, you know, you start small, you you know, just give out the loot to whoever's there. But as you get bigger, as, you know, you do more, more, more raids, you know, this uh, you know, eventually led to, uh, you know, the development of an informal scoring system, uh, which is the Dragon Killing Points DKP. So you can consider a DKP to be kind of like a contribution tracking system. So these are like, you know, points you are, well, uh, points you could earn, you know, for killing the dragons, so like, depending on how much, you know, Effort you put into, uh, or at least how much you contributed to killing the dragon, boom, uh, that's how much you uh, you should be getting. So here I'm just going to take a quick quote uh, from the article regarding DKP. So, quote, DKP acts as a private mon money system, separate from any existing currency in a game world, and guild members earn them based on their participation in raids. Guild members can choose to spend these points in exchange for loot after a raid. End quote. So you can think of, you know, the DKP is really just like a uh, intermediary currency uh, for contribution ta uh, contribution tracking. So, uh, you know, kind of a way to, uh, you know, figure out the relative uh, <laughs> uh, uh, relative value of someone's, you know, well, labor to uh, the loot, uh, if, you, uh, you know, if you want to think about it that way. So, you know, really interesting system, and uh, uh, so that's... Uh, that's uh, K kind of dives into a little bit more uh, in the article. And so also another way of thinking about DKP is like, it's kind of like a complementary currency or, uh, you know, of course it's not the main currency, but it's another currency to kind of help uh, with the social uh, relations. So kind of like a social token. Uh, so, uh, you know, also, you know, if, of course you've also listened to my other uh, podcast time about uh, complementary currencies. I think it's titled Beyond Money. Uh, and uh, I think alternative currencies also in the title. You know, we can create currencies for anything which we think are, is valuable, right? And so that's what's, you know, went on here. It's like, well, you know, we want to reward you for the work. <laughs> of course, how do we distribute that based on uh, uh, the work? Well, uh, and of course, based on, uh, you know, how much loot we got, then there you go. Now you got DKP, which acts as a complementary currency uh, in the system. And so, uh, Kay gets this really nice uh, passage just talking about uh, this paper by Ed Castronova and Joshua Fairfield uh, in their paper, Dragon Kill Points, a summary white paper, where they talk about the leftovers DKP system. So, uh, from this point, I'm just going to just quote from here because it's all actually pretty good. And unfortunately, I didn't get time to read the, this paper before uh, making this recording. So, uh, quote, as Kastanova and Fairfield write, quote, Indeed, this organization is effectively the highest allocated body in the population, and there's an emergent government on the World of Warcraft server, Silverhand, and it's the leftovers. End quote. The leftovers DKP system arises from a few limitations. Loot can only be picked up at the aftermath of a battle, and in World of Warcraft, 
cannot be transferred between players. The Leftovers DKP system has a small group of informally appointed governors, players who laboriously, through public dialogue, set and maintain a database of loot item prices in DKP. When loot drops, players with DKP can choose to spend them for a specific item, with all bids and transactions public. Being zero-sum, the Leftovers DKP system then equally distributes spent DKP points to all other guild members that participate in the raid, end quote. And uh, actually, as mentioned uh, in the article, so DKP, like, what's it really for? It's pretty much just like time banking. <laughs> you know, if you uh, think about it, it's, you know, I'll exchange, uh, you know, my uh, my time for, you know, X amount of the, you know, for the loot. So you kind of just, you know, I'll give you, you know, so it pretty much just kind of works like time banking. Uh, so I'll give you X amount of time uh in exchange for a certain amount of uh, of the loot because unfortunately in the game and this is something that uh, uh fairfield uh, mentioned in their in their paper uh is that you know that time itself wasn't compensated uh you know in in world of warcraft it wasn't compensated in the game so you know so since they didn't have that currency natively built in they had to make their own uh currency to handle uh, uh, handle time banking, or uh, you know people spending time on these raids, and so also another problem that also comes is that uh, you know since loot couldn't be transferred between players in World of Warcraft, you know having loot you know pretty much said that uh, you know uh, that you mainly per- meaningfully participate in raids over time, so it also shows that you know you're a person who participates well and kind of helps build your own little reputation. So you know, pretty much it kind of acts as like a com- com- <laughs> excuse me contribution uh, tracking mechanism. So you know, really interesting stuff. And so yeah, since this is a contribution you know uh, tracking mechanism, kind of acts as reputation. That's something that uh, K matches is that you know this. You know, kind of like acts as like a precursor for reputational tokens, which uh, appear in uh, in uh, some org tech uh, providers, so Aragon Colony and uh, uh, DAO stack. So that's a, I just thought that's an interesting point, just to show some of the precursors. But I mean, there, I mean, there's a lot of precursors for <laughs> for uh, for uh, reputation, but uh, yeah, that's just uh, an uh, an interesting one. And then K makes the point that you know, with these uh, rep tokens, they should be uh, spendable. On, uh, on other things rather than just solely uh, just amassed. Another uh, interesting point too is that, uh, you know, guilds that uh, uh, use DKP systems, you know, also figured out ways to resolve their disputes, of course, without <laughs> going to going to court. <laughs> so that's another, you know, uh, area where DAOs can learn from gaming guilds is, you know, how do they handle dispute resolution? And even though there are some, you know, great org tech tools and of course guy mentioned Claros because you know it's a blockchain co-op and you know there's also Aragon you know at, you know it, you, you know you can have the tools but at the same time it's like you know how exactly should we go about this resolution so I, that's an area that uh DAOs can uh, learn from uh, from gaming guilds and then uh there's also another <laughs> really interesting point uh and uh, Kay mentions uh, uh, Joshua Cedarella, uh, a researcher who looked at DKP systems and came to the uh, uh, conclusion that they resemble a form of market socialism, in which goods are publicly owned but allocated by markets. Uh, so Cedarella 
talks about how you know if you know that's uh dkp systems you know resemble market socialism however none of the players would ever you know, politically you know align with uh with that label and you know funny enough you know i think that's something uh that's kind of relates back to the u.s uh, uh centricness of uh well of, well of online games but also to web3 uh and before you know talking about that a little bit longer i'm just going to mention a little bit more from uh, from this passage uh so you know there's also this you know, term shadow economics which is when a group operates uh through an economic form which it wouldn't label itself as and this is something uh, that k points out like deos uh you know act as well, practice cooperativism but don't want to be called co-ops and then you have gaming goals which practice market socialism but don't want, want to be called markets uh you know well socialists so, you know, it's an interesting ground where no one wants to be politically defined, but I kind of like that because, you know, once again, uh, it's something that harkens back to, you know, the beginning of, well, the internet. And so, you know, K mentions that this could be a feature where, you know, these neologisms, which kind of throw away the old, <laughs> or at least not try to avoid the old, so that this way they can embrace the future. And so going to, uh, to the U.S. centricness uh, about that. So, you know, first it starts with, of course, with Going back to John Barlow and uh, his thoughts on cyberspace, that cyberspace is separate from you know like the real world and it should be its own space, and so that kind of goes to how DAOs don't want to be known as you know cross and also getting goals don't want to be you know uh, free to market socialism because neither one of them wants to uh, yeah at least if you're going through uh, you know from uh, Barlow's reasonings that you know you want to escape from the real world and these to me are real world things while you know cyberspace is its own space and you know we get to redefine or at least define a world for you know for ourselves for the netizens or and you could say and then to my second place you know since uh you know a lot of these mos uh at least you know do have a big you know player base from the us and web3 as well you know these terms themselves have been you know uh have been uh, socially uh you know uh, found well you know, kind of, well, they could also be derogatory. <laughs> you know, they're, you know, uh, they're, you know, social, I would say they're you know, socially, you know, uh, looked down upon. Some could even say, you know, derogatory. Because, you know, it's like calling someone a communist in the U.S. It's pretty much, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's very derogatory. It's pretty much offensive thing. You know, you could almost say the same about socialist. You know, it's a label that people get attended and it's like, oh, you should be scared of them. It's a socialist, a socialist. You know, most people in the U.S. don't know what socialism is, nor do they know what communism is. But, <laughs> you know, we're scared of it. And this, you know, goes back to uh, really the 1950s with McCarthyism, where McCarthy, you know, uh, would, you know, call, uh, you know, other members of Congress, you know, communists. He was just claim them to be communists you know did they have any evidence no but you know it's just the fear of the label itself because this was during the time uh you know the you know high the cold war you know with uh, with uh, the soviet union at the time which uh claimed to be a communist government <laughs> as, uh, as a lot of authoritarian governments do and uh you know because of that label you know it really scared people and you know just create a lot of cultural fear around the term communists and socialists and you know there's also a long history of the u.s government trying to put down the rights of uh communist and uh socialist uh, uh movements or groups because of the fear of what uh, <laughs> of what they could do which you know pretty much amounts to very little but you know it's just the very fear of these groups coming in you know taking over or changing uh the u.s 
is uh, you know very worrisome and something that you know kind of pervades the whole uh, you know culture, you know, socially, politically, economically. You know, it's it's really all over the place. So I think that's also another uh, you know reason why you might not see uh, you know deals or uh, gaming girls want to be associated with those terms because of the U.S. centricness and how U.S. culture really looks down upon uh, those uh, well the term socialism, communism, and find some you know even possibly derogatory if you you know say someone and you know, so, you know even though I don't necessarily get political and. I don't see uh, much of a reason to get political uh, about these things, especially on a on a podcast. But I just think it's really important to note is that those could also be a factors for the reason why you know people don't want those labels. Uh, and uh, you know, if you look at uh, you know in Europe, uh, you know being a socialist is not necessarily anywhere near as bad as being a socialist in the U.S. So you know it's just one of those you know things where depending on where you are. Uh, you know, you might, uh, you know, not be as, uh, you know, uh, as, uh, socially ostracized and something I think also gets reflected in just, uh, you know, the, uh, the government supports and legal, uh, legal supports and financial support for, uh, for cooperatives and cooperative like organizations because there's much more support for them in Europe than there is in the U S and I think this relates to, uh, you know, the branding and, the uh, the dislike for uh for you know the uh, piece of uh, all uh, communism and uh, and socialism or at least how they've been perceived uh, in the U.S. since you know the 1920s 1950s and uh, and uh, so on. But I think that is like changing with the time <laughs> because now it's, it's now uh, you know there was a time when people were calling Perry Sanders a socialist like he's a socialist as a way to uh to attack him but, just, but i at least most of the people that's uh uh that i've met or even you know talked to online or you know just you know uh you know uh or at least you know just general discourse it's like yeah like whatever like does, do people really care about you know socialism you know being labeled as socialist you know is this still seems the right term i think that's uh kind of uh uh, lessening uh, in our current time period here in the U.S., and I think uh, you know it's also a another interesting uh, point that Nathan Schneider made. Uh, I think it might just been a tweet about Lando Lakes because Lando Lakes is a farmer-owned cooperative, and so back in uh, you know uh, you know even like the the fifties, they've been around for a long time. They would you know probably not have said farmer-owned. Because that might have raised concerns about their, uh, you know, association with socialism or uh, communism, and might have, you know, hurts uh, the company. But now you see it's, you know, right on the on the label for their uh, for their uh, products. So you buy like Lendo Lakes, whether you'll see farmer owned. So you know, it might just be a changing of the times, and you know, that's uh, another uh, point I think uh, to mention as well. It's just you know the cultural. Uh, backing, or at least where a lot of this, uh, uh, you know, where a lot of people in the culture that's a lot of the, uh, you know, I'd say gaming comes from, and also Web3, it's, you know, it's US centric. So that, you know, influences the space, influences the, what's, you know, <laughs> what are the acceptable ideas, what are the unacceptable ideas. Uh, so I think that's something that also plays a, a, a big role. Uh, as well, and that's actually pretty funny because you know, Kay also has this uh, tweet from the blockchain socialist, and uh, the tweet itself is just that you know, th- it doesn't really matter 
uh, you know, what someone thinks. It's really about Twitter. The, the, the platform helps us, you know, achieve our play call objectives. And I think that's, you know, kind of relates back, of course, to, uh, uh, Citarella's, you know, uh, uh, paper. You know, it's like, don't gaming girls don't want to be called, you know, market socialism and the right now we call digital co-ops or co-ops. But then again, at the end, it doesn't really matter as long as you, you know, as long as they achieve the goal that you're looking for. So I think that's a, an interesting point. So, uh, you know, to uh, to think about. And then from there, uh, Kay moves on to talk about how DEOs uh, can be considered a new uh, a new uh, organizational form. Uh, and kind of going back to like organizational studies and uh, economic theory. You know, concerning you know uh, Ronald Coase and his you know uh, theory of the firm or the nature of the firm, which is you know one like the biggest uh, papers describing <laughs> the reason why uh, you know not not everything is you know strictly a market transaction or like why exactly do we even have firms if you can just go to the markets and contract with uh, with pretty much anyone technically, and so the DAA <laughs> sorry the DAO propositions that they can outcompete the modern uh, firm. And so if you haven't, you know, had a chance to read The Theory of the Firm by Ronald Coase, I really do recommend uh, to read it. It's honestly one of the most famous, like, papers I've ever written. And it's great, uh, uh, you know, great paper just talking about, like, you know, why exactly do we even have firms if you can just go to a go to a market? And so, you know, the reason why, you know, uh, you know we have firms is because there's certain transaction costs which, you, which are hard to deal with in the market. And so these can really be easily handled. So to avoid some of these costs, you f- make a firm instead. So instead of going outside, you know, the firm you stay inside and you know contract people to stay with you rather than just one-offs, or not you know becoming part of one uh, singular organization. And so these transactions costs uh, include price discovery. Uh, so trying to figure out what the price of uh, you know good or service is, contract negotiation. So trying to uh, you know contract with someone, of course you're negotiating. So you're kind of going back and forth, and how long will that take? Uh, you know, those are things which can uh, you know raise the cost of a transaction, or uh, you know trying to you know get used to some new service, or you know, trying to learn some new skills, which can also uh, you know hurt those things. And so you know, based on you know the theory of the firm, you know uh, you know a firm itself. You know, has you know practical limits to a scale. So a firm won't grow uh, any bit larger, you know, uh, uh, than uh, its transactions costs. So you know, a firm, you know, uh, you know, as long as the transaction costs you know remain lower than what it would be to go out in the markets, uh, the firm should exist. And so, you know, DAOs, uh, you know, if you position them in there. Uh, you know what they're trying to do is you know try to handle the scalability, so you know be more efficient in scaling, so this way they can get past the limits of the firm. Uh, so you know those are one of those uh, things we're trying to do, and you know this is definitely one of the things I think you know blockchain web three can do is really reduce transaction costs. So it's you know very you know very doable at least from that perspective. And you know this can be done you know through uh, you know through org tech, and so you know came into some of the advantages. As you know, it'd be really easy to set up a joint bank account, you know, uh, among people across borders, across jurisdictions, 
Uh, it's much easier to do that with like Nessa Safe than try to do that with like a traditional bank account. So that's one thing you can. Uh, uh, well, that's one area where those transaction costs become much cheaper, and uh, especially at scale. But you know, even if you have you know these uh, uh, these t- uh, tools from OrgTech, it doesn't mean you know the organization itself can always scale. And so uh, you know, Kay mentions that uh, you know you know the promise of uh, you know DAOs. You know, like what exactly is it? And sometimes some people just you know make DAOs just to make a DAO, but like there's no community to manage, there's no uh, product to manage. So like, what exactly are you making a DAO? Sometimes it's just to make a DAO. Uh, so uh, Kay mentions uh, this uh, really good paper uh, by uh, Shia Clara Breck, uh, Kate B. Croft, and Francesca Pick. Uh, the paper is the Census Protocol Governing Differences in Online Peer Communities. And uh, in that paper, uh, the authors focus on a case of the Genesis DAO, uh, a collective that was on the DAO stack. And so I'm just going to include the, the quote here, but this is really good. So, uh, uh, quote, the Genesis DAO is a good example of a unique trait coming to many DAOs, namely that they compromise highly motivated groups that formed around a set of ideas about governance, rather than governance being a means in order to achieve some shared mission. In other words, it was tool-centric and focused on one main action, allocating funds to proposals. It is unusual for people who are strangers to start making financial decisions together immediately without having time to develop coherence and trust. And this was in fact the very promise of projects like the Genesis DAO, that the technology would bypass the need to develop trusted relationships, meaning thousands of people would be able to coalesce around objectives, take actions, and even spend money together as a group." End quote. I think that's just a really good point. So that's you know just having Ortec itself doesn't uh, you know create the the relationships between people and uh, something I mentioned earlier is that you know DAO it's all about the connection between the social layer and the technical layer you know if you just try to do something technical you know it's not gonna be a successful DAO because it doesn't handle social and you know vice versa so you know that's just a <laughs> uh, you know for me at least a good example of <laughs> the reason why you should focus on both layers. <laughs> yeah, and then Kay makes a really good point that you know just focusing on tools uh, is probably not uh, the best practice because tools themselves don't necessarily make you know, useful cultural patterns. Though I'm not too sure about that for tools for thought, <laughs> but I'll have to think about it. But as a just a really good point, just you know just making the tools doesn't necessarily create you know culture. So it's something that you know you got to really do at. Uh, you got the social and technical layer. You know, social layer, you got to build that coherence, you got to build that trust. And then technical layer, you just got to use, you know, org tech. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, they, you know, what's the deal? You know, really, what's the goal of the deal? Better governance. And, uh, you know, helping people, you know, be able to do that. So, you know, that's something that's, uh, uh, to, you know, to think about. And then, you know, Kay moves on to discuss the layers of DAOs. And so she kind of, you know, uh, harks on, the heterarchy nature of networks, and so uh, you know, she uh, mentions this you know uh, paper by Patrick Rawson, uh, ownership and crypto networks, where he talks about kind of making a uh, uh, like kind of like a federated network of organizations. Uh, so you know, he's got this you know uh, nice quote which I'm just going to use. Uh, quote: Distributing ownership to squad-like entities with more specialized objectives is the key long-term problem to solve. End quote. Um, and so by doing that, you know, it's really just, you know, making small teams, which all kind of work together. 
and you know which are all aligned based on you know, uh, you know certain values and uh, and missions, and so if you look at it like that, which is kind of just a network of uh, of teams, small teams, it just looks like the uh, Mondragon Corporation, and that's something that uh, K mentions is the it's Mondragon, uh, which is in Barcelona, which is of course a network of hundred affiliate cooperatives. You know, it's freaking huge, but their model makes so much sense, and so you know they have cooperatives in so many different sectors. Uh, you know, they have education cooperatives, they got uh, 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 delivery co- cooperatives, at least I think so. <laughs> but yeah, they have a lot of co-ops which, uh, which are part of, you know, Mondragon. Uh, even another example of that would also be like Co-op Cycle, which has many uh, delivery co-ops, which are all members of Co-op Cycle, which just use Co-op Cycle software to uh for uh for their uh bike delivery so that's also another example of uh of a network of cooperatives so really really looking at like a cooperative federation so putting those you know uh together those are like examples of how you would have uh kind of a network of 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 uh of small teams or just teams or you know to me you know just cooperatives so just a network of co-ops which is pretty much just a cooperative federation and so yeah, there's some really like nice sketches uh, included uh, with the article regarding uh, this part, and so she divides uh, uh, basing on some of the the layers uh, uh, from uh, from Rawson's uh, paper. She divides uh, the into three layers, which is one a token, multi-organizational networks aligned by token ownership, teams, teams, guilds, and squads represented by token ownership, excuse me, uh, and missions. Uh, which is financed missions, milestones, and rates financed by token ownership. And from here, you can make heterarchical uh, networks. So you know, you can you know you know uh, order rank it any you know any real way you want. Okay, and so you know the big thing is of course you want to you know uh, distribute ownership among you know these uh, uh, well this network of uh, of. Uh, of uh, the NDLK makes this you know really interesting point, which I really like, is that you know NDL shouldn't be you know really just uh, constrained to. Oh, actually, I need to go back. Uh, you know, uh, you know, tokens, teams, and missions shouldn't be constrained to one DAO, but should be allowed to you know uh, be uh, allowed to go uh, or at least be involved in multiple DAOs. So uh, she mentions that you know this could be represented by token ownership and multiple DAOs. So you know you could have a team and there's members of multiple DAOs, which I think is you know very possible. And I actually kind of like that uh, uh, as well. And so she mentions how this is kind of like a contrast to uh, you know the uh, uh, global corporations because they kind of do a similar thing. Because you know you have like Facebook in Ireland, Facebook in the U.S., Facebook you know in other countries, but it's all controlled by Facebook uh in the u.s and it's kind of a command and control but uh with uh with the aos though uh you wouldn't have uh, uh this uh, command control being much more like a network hierarchical network so some you know you know some are on top some are on bottom and you know whatnot and how they order themselves is kind of up to them so you know groups can uh you know naturally move themselves up and down and uh there's no you know, particular organization which kind of forces uh, authority or uh, or control over this uh, ecosystem of DAOs. 
and you know this can be done by you know lowering transaction costs you know via org tech and just uh, web in general and uh you know really you know get benefit of this which uh uh k uh, quotes from uh from uh, from rawson as that's yeah i'll just include a quote uh, quote, as long as the collective member freely circulates within a given DAO network, discovery solutions to problems can be reused, end quote. Which I think is a really good point. You know, if one organization learns something and finds a solution, you know, it should be allowed to share that with uh, with other uh, uh, organizations within this uh, the ecosystem. And so, you know, it's really, uh, you know, that's just a really interesting point, which I really liked. And she has this really... Uh, a nice uh, passage here with all this quote when we view DAOs as multi-organizational networks aligned by token ownership the purpose of DAO tooling becomes not only to support the operations of one team but to facilitate collaborations across many end quote so really about uh, DAO to DAO uh, interactions uh, so that's something that's actually being worked on uh, looks like by uh, by prime DAO so this is kind of like a business-to-business -business, uh, products. And funny enough, there are a lot of you know, co-ops which handle business-to-business, -business, for example, co-op cycle. <laughs> uh, but I'm not sure. Actually, let me tell you about, you know, they probably service to business, but not necessarily, you know, B2B. But, you know, that's something that can, uh, can be done. So that, you know, will be really interesting to see. And that's something that I think, you know, uh, that uh, DAOs can really be used for. And actually also harkens back to a, uh, uh, this older term that people used to use called meta organizations, which was kind of like a loosely affiliate uh, group where no one you know was really in control, but they all worked together to solve some missions. So you could also hearken that to like creating a meta organization uh, via DAOs or this or a DAO ecosystem uh, comprised of uh, of uh, of tokens, teams, and uh, and missions. So yeah, I can also just call it a, a meta organization. And I can't remember the paper, but if you search meta organizations, oh, uh, you should be able to find it. And you know, there are teams working on these uh, DAO to DAO, uh, in other words, uh, business to business uh, products. So hopefully those come out uh, soon and we all get to uh, test them out. And then going back to the promise, uh, K, uh, Sorry, to the process of the DLSK mentions that you know it's not really about having a lot of people be involved in every proposal, but it's really about you know spreading expertise throughout the network. So the you know, person who has the most relevant expertise gets to you know uh, work on the proposal, or just that they can share it easily with the ecosystem. So which kind of harkens back to like commons-based peer production, uh, and you know having you know playing the kind of like uh you know having you know the uh the person's the best for the job self-assign themselves uh so that's uh you know that's just an interesting point and so you know if you just see it as you know just collection of teams or DAOs as collection of teams you know it's a way just to you know allow for you know the way for knowledge to spread throughout the network which kind of just goes back to like common space peer protection so you know it's nice little uh, uh, you know point oh, passage that harkens back to uh, to uh, to that uh, production method, and then you know uh, K kind of goes back to uh, the tribes, institutions, markets, networks uh, reports, and uh, just uh, mentions uh, uh, just the closing part of uh, of the essay. I'm just going to include the quote here because it's actually pretty interesting, and, and I'll probably talk about. It. Uh, uh, in a little bit more detail uh, after the quote. So, uh, quote, 
much of literature about redesigning organizations for the information age focuses on production on improving productivity or manufacturing something new like the Boeing uh, 777 jetliner. Yet, this does not reflect a lingering industrial age mentality. Production organizations remain a crucial part of the organizational ecology. However, we should also think, be thinking about sensory organizations. Sensory functions are quite different from production functions and require different modes of organization. For example, more networks connected to the world outside an office's boundaries. Determining appropriate designs for all manner of sensory organizations may become a good meta theme for innovative research and development in the years ahead. End quote. So I think, you know, the quote itself is actually a pretty good point. It's, you know, uh, I think that kind of harkens to uh, the Internet of Things, really. And, uh, you know, to uh, you know, give an organization sensory functions, you know, if you have a DAO that also has IoT or at least manages some IoT uh, 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 products. You know, for example, let's just say it has a sensor to uh, measure uh, uh, air quality, and based on that, uh, it you know completes you know some function or something. You know, that could be a way for it to sense beyond <laughs> uh, the office, or you know, just making sense of knowledge itself. I think it also uh, go along with that. So instead of you know, trying to make better. Uh, uh, production or getting better at making things we get better at uh you know uh, at least going back to the to the quote better at sensing things so i think that's an interesting uh point and then k uh you know on that uh on that point that's about how that was just like a, a really uh popular sentiment at uh, the end of uh, the 20th century and then you know if we do allow <laughs> well if you know the else did uh operate on our nervous systems first, yeah, it wouldn't mean that uh, they can't change the material world. And that's something that's uh, is very true. You know, it's something curious on the internet. It doesn't necessarily mean it can't affect uh, the real world. And that goes back to, you know, any of things, cyber-physical uh, systems. Because, you know, things that do happen, excuse me, uh, you know, online can affect the real world. And <laughs> unfortunately, they sometimes do it for the worse. And that's... Uh, you know, K makes the point that, you know, that's, you know, some aren't, you know, well, some are refusing to recognize, you know, DAOs as a new uh, organizational form with uh, legitimate political relevance. But I think, you know, uh, I'm not so sure that's really a great point yet, just considering how DAOs have been used so far, like they haven't really done too much. So I think, you know, what time that will, that will come, but, uh, uh, came to the point that it's, well, that DAOs should be taken seriously now, and that you know eventually we'll get a time when you have DAOs against uh, 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 political action committees or uh, PACs, which I think could be true, but it'd probably just be like a DAO, which is a PAC itself. <laughs> yeah, because that's really the only way, of, yeah, only way it makes sense to be honest. Since you know to be a PAC, it to be. Uh, registered under uh uh you know it's a 51c type of organization i'm forgetting which subsection but as a 51c type of organization so the, really the only way you could do it is if you were a pack yourself so that part doesn't really make too much sense but you know just the fact that deals can get more uh, political power as you know here in the u.s you know it's, it's very possible actually makes a, a really good point is that you know when markets came they didn't make the state obsolete but they did you know uh, reduce some of the uh, state's operations 
while strengthening others. You know, DAOs will also do the same for traditional political participation, and this might lead to the emergence of uh, of what she uh, uh, points out is called the Network Union, which links to this article by uh, Balaji uh, called the Network Union, which is kind of like a network state, <laughs> which is funny because it kind of relates to uh, uh, the claims of a network society, which is something that's, uh, you know, it's really kind of when the internet combines with society, it's the network society. You have uh, network states. <laughs> that's something that, you know, people have been, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, thinking about since really the 90s and, you know, just, you know, how the, how, uh, you know, the internet itself will, uh, will change uh, how our uh, societies run and operate. Okay, points out one of the reasons why you know, the itself might not be taken seriously. It's also because of the term itself. The A, of course, stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And so the A, autonomous, like, <laughs> what does that actually even mean? And that's something I, uh, uh, a point I did make uh, when I wrote notes, uh, like, a long time ago. Uh, to a friend of mine just discussing like how would you define DAO like that's what one of the things I harped on because you know is it a Thomas like a self-driving car it's you know is that what you mean by Thomas because it's nowhere close to that <laughs> so you know it's one of those you know points it's like what exactly does it mean to be a Thomas you could say it means in the political sense but you know it's, it's like I mean sure uh, you know that just makes it like a volunteer association so uh, that's something that's a uh, that uh, uh, Kay mentions uh, from uh, from uh, from Ade Lane. Hopefully, I pronounced that uh, uh, properly. So that you know should be you know reference to uh, the political uh, sense of autonomy, not uh, not the uh, well. I'd say well the technical sense, or at least within the sense of like a self-driving car or autonomous uh, system. So you know that's a. You know, a good uh, another good way of looking at it, but you know just considering where web3 comes from and the definition of dao like i'm not really sure that's really what autonomous is meant to meant to be uh so you know lots of different ways of looking at this term and trying to uh, define it and i think that also is unfortunately one of the problems is you know what is what is the a what's what does it mean by autonomous what's it mean by decentralized what do you mean by organization and this leads to uh uh Okay, I mentioned this quote from, uh, from the digital, uh, well, sorry, not a quote, just mentioned a point made by the digital minister of, uh, of Taiwan, uh, Audrey Tang, that you know, we could eventually get, like, avatar politicians, which, you know, finally relates to this uh, episode of, uh, of Black Mirror. Uh, I'm trying to remember the episode, but it was, like, you had this weird, uh, like, blue, uh, blue, uh, like pets, and there's this guy behind it, and he had to like voice the <laughs> voice the pet, and it will like you know it's just like a prank or uh you know it's like a comedian, and like they're just prank and saying like he's gonna run for office through this virtual uh virtual animal, and this political party used him, and then eventually they win, but and, and so that's kind of like uh you know a downside of you know having like a avatar politicians that you know like it's controlled by a, a, a political platform political party and you know it might uh you know get people to vote for things which they might not necessarily like or it could be used for things which are nefarious or harmful to the actual uh populace and then the, the episode's the one with uh not sh I, i'm probably not getting the right uh, name but uh, uh i think it's the, the walden moment 
So yeah, it's like a virtual bear. <laughs> Sorry, what's not a pet? It was a bear. Unless you keep bears as pets where you're around. And so that's like what I was thinking about when I saw the term about uh, about uh, uh, having a avatar politicians. You know, that's uh, you know, immediately where my mind went. And like, oh, this could go so wrong so fast. <laughs> but uh, you know, some that could happen. You could have you know, uh, you know. And this one that Kay points out, which I think it's pretty interesting, it's like, you know, it's automation increases. You could have decentralized avatar organizations, you know, it's, you know, just match, you know, virtual beings or even, uh, you know, or even just like robots or, you know, just, you know, match virtual beings or can match, you know, real world machines or, uh, or, you know, uh, or robots. <laughs> so you know those are things that could uh, that could happen, but also you know like uh, you know perch kind of going back to IoT. So you could have virtual beings. So and then IoT. So that's uh, that's something really interesting. But uh, uh, you know, she only mentions uh, uh, you know decentralized avatar organizations uh, uh, kind of like in passing. Not a, not very descriptive there, but uh, it's something to. Interesting to think about. And then Kate concludes uh, the article with saying that DEOs should move towards a syncretic theory of organizations, which means, you know, incorporating a wide range of cultural patterns, practices, and influences uh, while recognizing uh, as inherent political biases. Also, you know, move away from <laughs> fetishizing technical protocols and so making, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, building culture and environments people actually want to be in. And finding uh, ways to develop coherence and trust among them, uh, which is you know a little bit easier to do when you have you know, uh, you know having shared narratives, shared values, uh, shared norms, uh, and shared missions, and making the really the internet a place for also relationships and thoughts. Uh, going back to Barlow, <laughs> even though I think his relationships and thoughts is a little different than what a uh, club or uh, even a DAO is actually going for, and. Uh, that's uh, you know, kind of concluding that you know with you know DOs you know, become much more like you know the well become more like guilt in that and MMOs massively multiplayer online games and that's really more about it's like a high stakes game world that comes together rather excuse me rather than a you know, technical protocol for governance so you know, really it's about coming together so uh, that's pretty much uh, uh, the the article. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I know this is super long, but uh, you know, I just wanted to get my thoughts uh, out there. You know, hopefully, uh, you've had a chance to uh, read uh, the article. Uh, it's actually pretty good. You know, it's long, but it's pretty good. <laughs> and uh, hopefully, uh, you guys uh, enjoyed uh, this episode. Yeah, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, uh, any corrections, uh, or anything you want to mention, just uh, you know, send you know uh, uh, an email to legibeck at gmail.com or uh, leave a reply or comments uh, on this episode. Uh, once again, I'm Charles Jovu. You can find me on Twitter at c a d j o v u, and I'm with Ledgerback uh, at Ledgerback. And uh, once again, thanks for listening. I know this is super long, so thanks for sticking with us. And so, uh, you know, this episode is produced by Speaking to Microphones. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, if you have any, you know, uh, 
questions, comments, send a message. And uh, yeah, hopefully come by for uh, for the next episode and 